Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloane, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're bringing you a special sort of episode. As you know, as you probably know, we are in the swing of, we're trying to get back into the swing of things. That's yes. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so um, this episode is a update on the Murdoch case, which we have been covering. We've done two episodes on in the past. It is, once again, the only episode that we are bringing you this week. And next week is Mardi Gras. And if you call it last week's episode... I mean, it's technically Mardi Gras now, but it's like yeah. the big Mardi Gras week. Yeah. Like here in Mobile, we have Joe Kane Day, which is Sunday. And then Monday's kind of big still. And then Fat Tuesday is Tuesday, clearly Fat Tuesday. Um, but like I said, in the last episode, we talked a lot about this. We did Mardi Gras fun facts at the end for the, um, last call at the very end. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so if you heard all of that, I do apologize if we're repeating things, but Mardi Gras is kind of a big deal around here. And one of our best friends is coming in town. So we have taken off from work to be with her and celebrate the ending of Mardi Gras and that means that we do not have the time to dedicate dedicate to this. And that is a-okay because sometimes life comes first, guys. Yes. Anyways, with that being said, we're going to kick you off to the Murdaugh update. This is going to be a short, quick, sweet one. And see you at the bartending. to another bartending lesson class whatever you want to call this with Sloan today I'm going to make a like Valentine's themed I know it's a little bit late but I have that red velvet Bailey's and it's February so well it'll be fine by the time this comes out on Valentine's Day so happy Valentine's Day <laughs> I just usually like to give these recipes ahead of time so you yeah. can like have them for the occasion so to me this is late but regardless Maybe you'll remember this for next time, next year. And anyways, red velvet martini. What I did was I took two ounces of the red velvet Baileys, and I promise you this bottle is worth it. Like, if you are a red velvet fan, it's delicious. So two ounces of that, two ounces of vanilla or whipped cream vodka would work as well. Shake that together, strain it, pour in your martini glass, and enjoy. It is a beautiful, like, dark pink reddish color so it's right on theme for valentine's day and it's really quite delicious as well so i hope you enjoy this and we'll kick you off to the episode all right so as we said today's case is probably new to most of you because i don't think <laughs> i know too too many people still kind of keeping up with the murdoch case but it just seems like when it rains, it pours in that case. And the newest updates is all about the trial that is going on. So when we last left you with the update, we updated you that Alex has now been accused of killing his wife and son. And that there was a trial about to happen. Well, that trial is now going on. So this is all bringing out a whole like slew of new like videos and evidence and stuff and it's even giving us a more precise timeline which the majority of this episode is going to be the new updated timeline and when i was going through it, it blew my mind like i was just like Whoa, 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 that does not track with what he originally said. I have not heard any of this, so I am buckled up and ready for this ride. Yes, you definitely are going to want a drink because this, like I said, there's stuff that, like, they kind of released. Like, you can tell investigators have been, like, piecing this together and just kind of only trickling information. And now that they have what they probably consider like their smoking gun it is now 
out in public and it's it's crazy um i'm excited to hear your reactions so this new evidence kind of like i said it paints a clear picture of the night of the murders um so we know that on june 7th alex contacts his wife who is not staying with him if you remember this from like one of the last updates we did i don't remember if i did that in the last update or in the first like bringing this to you but him and his wife were separated and she was living on Adesto Island, I think is how it's said. I don't know. But either way, she was living like in basically like their summer home or whatnot. And her, like their son, was also contacted and he was in Beaufort County. Mm-hmm. And basically, Alex texted both of them to meet at the family's. Uh, Mosell property and here is like the kind of updated timeline so we know that the father like Alex's father is terminally ill and that the same day that he contacted his wife and son to meet is when he's found out that his father was terminally ill but we also find out like that on that same day he's confronted at the law firm about missing funds so at 328 the housekeeper blanca turbit simpson i'm sorry if i said that last name wrong but I'm just going to refer to her as Blanca when I do talk about her. So, at 3.28, she finishes cooking dinner for Alex, Maggie, and Paul at Moselle. And she then texts Maggie that dinner is on the stove and that she just left. So, she, the housemaid leaves at basically right about 3.30. At 3.40... Maggie, I guess, reads the text and replies, thank you. 3.41, just a minute later, Alex places a FaceTime call to Maggie that goes unanswered. And here's a strange thing. It's on record, and a SLD agent, SLED agent, which they're, like, the, basically, like, top tier for, like, that area, goes on record and testifies that you can that they were able to find out that the the FaceTime call was manually deleted from Alex's phone. Hmm. Why are you deleting FaceTime calls? Hmm. Suspicious. Yes. So that happened at 3:41. At 3.55, Maggie texts Blanca that she's waiting at the doctor and Alex wants, like, her to come home. Like, wants Maggie to come home. And she says, I have to leave. I have to leave the door open at, like, Estido. And she... She kind of comes off as like that rich white lady because she literally says, I trust Mexicans to shut and lock me lock for me. I mean, they all sound like rich white people. Yeah. But yes, I get what it's, you're saying. Yeah, it's like, I'm like, tell me that you literally think of your like housekeepers as like second class citizens. But yeah, she tells her basically like that she basically trusts that someone's gonna lock the door for like shut and lock the door because she has to leave it open and then she goes on to say like his dad is back in the hospital no cancer it's pneumonia this time um and then 
at 357 Maggie texts Blanca that Alex has a lot of pressure on him to care for his parents and she says Alex is about to die hope he doesn't go down there to sleep Alex needs to take care of himself as well so basically like even though she's going through this like are we going to divorce are we not thing she you can tell she still is at least thinking about Alex so at the same time that Maggie is texting Blanca Alex texts Maggie to ask her you know basically how's the doctor's appointment going and Maggie does respond saying that she's waiting as usual then at 406 Maggie texts Blanca again at, like about Alex's ailing father saying I'm scared for him and Alex and all of us and Blanca texts back I know just pray about it just pray about it and hope he gets a little better Alex and you really need to relax always being on the go with little to no sleep is not healthy I have a doctor's appointment in the morning in Beaufort if I go to Moselle I'll let you know so basically, it sounds like Maggie and Blanca basically are working together to kind of keep tabs on Alex and like make sure, I guess, that he's not like wearing himself too thin. So then, like, this is all happening, like, basically at like 4.06, like that time. From 4.10 to 6.25, Alex's phone is placed at the law firm, which is in Hampton. From 425 to 705, Maggie's phone has her placed in West Ashley, which is near Charleston. And then at 435, Alex tries to place another FaceTime call to Maggie that again goes unanswered. And again, you find out that that is later deleted manually from Alex's phone. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Yeah, he's not doing himself too many favors. Well, he thought the good old boys were going to just, you know, stop all of this from ever even being looked into. So he didn't think that he needed to yeah. it's cover just, his ass. It's just, it's, I don't understand why you're like, trying to basically hide the fact that you're trying to call your wife but you're still texting her but you're not deleting the text it's it's just it's strange so then from 5 30 to 609 paul's phone has him placed in okatai which i'm not <coughs> We're not from the area. That'd be a, um, oh, the one that works at, at, at work that is from the area. Yes. That'd be a her question and see, like, how close together all this is. Yes. But could ask. Or we could have Googled. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> but I'm assuming it's nothing too, too far because they do, like, end up meeting, like, at the house. So. It's just, it's at least giving, like, reference that they're not in an area altogether until they are at the house. So, like I said, that's from 5.30 to 6.09. From 6.17 to 6.53, Paul is shown traveling towards Moselle. And at 6.40 is when Alex is placed there. Then from 7.05, you have Alex who messages Maggie saying that Paul said that she's getting a petty, like a pedicure, mm -hmm. and to call him when she's done. So at 7.07 to 7.50, Maggie's phone places her traveling from North Charleston area towards, like, Moso, and this is by taking Highway 17. They made sure to include that, so I'm not sure if that is something that police 
are using as like another thing. Like I said, this is still ongoing. This is just the latest updates that have come out. So 745 to 756, Paul's phone places him at the kennels at the residence. And at 750, Maggie's phone is in Walterboro, which is roughly a half hour away from Moselle. And it's the last location that data, like, is pulled from her phone. At 7.56, Paul sends a video to longtime friend Will Loving. And in the video, you see, like, you basically, you hear Paul laughing. And you see Alex standing by a little tree at Moselle. And it, like, flops over, I guess. So at 8.06, Paul's phone moves from the kennels towards the main house. And then from 8.09 to 9.02, Alex's phone records no steps, indicating he was not moving with the phone in his possession, and he later told investigators that he was sleeping during that time. Hmm. How convenient. Yes, especially keep that time in mind. 8.09 to 9.02. 8.31, Lynn Murdoch sends a text to members of the family about the ailing Rudolph Murdoch, which is the grandfather. Mm-hmm. Maggie reads the text seconds later, and Alex does not read it until 1.44 p.m. the following day. At 8.38 p.m., Paul's phone places him back at the dog kennels, and he calls longtime friend Rogan Gibson, asking if something is wrong with the tail of Gibson's dog, who was staying in the Murdoch kennels. And Paul attempts to FaceTime video to, like, show Gibson what he means. At 8.44, Paul records a video for Gibson at the kennels showing the dog in the video, but in the background, you want to know what you hear? Three voices, which multiple witnesses testify that it is the voice of Paul, Maggie, and Alex. Again, this is at 8.44. I, I thought you were sleeping, Alex. I thought, you know, you were asleep. It's hard to do both at the same time. At eight, Unless you're sleepwalking. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case here. Yes. But I do want to asterisk because your girl, me, I sleepwalk, I sleep eat, I sleep talk, <laughs> I, I do it all. Yes. I do it all. There was one night like two weeks ago that I was like... I woke up the next day and I was like, damn, I did not sleep well at all. And my husband was like, yeah, you got up and walked around the apartment like eight times. Like every 30 minutes you were up walking around the apartment. And I was like, huh. <laughs> was okay. he in his office or was he in the bed? <laughs> he was in his office for most of it. <laughs> like, oh, she's just not comfy. <laughs> Uh, so yes Nathaniel. so sleepwalking is an option but I don't think that's the option here yeah <laughs> oh gosh oh Nate god love you <laughs> well they do say not to wake up a sleepwalker, yeah. a sleepwalker. so like what is he to do other than it's just so let funny, me be <laughs> that he's actually up and awake and witnessing it <laughs> yes at five six o'clock in the morning yes Anyways, so, <laughs> so yeah, eight forty four. There is a video placing the voices of Paul, Maggie, and Alex at the kennels. At eight forty nine, Rogan texts Paul about his dog's tail and says, "See if you can get a good picture of it." Marion wants to send it to a girl. Who- we know that's a vet. Get him to sit and stay. He shouldn't move around too much. But the text, like the text is sent, but it goes unread. So 
At this same time, Maggie Murda reads another text in the group chat about Randolph Murda, which she may or may not have been the one to read that. We don't know, especially if you follow the timeline. <laughs> I was about to say, like, I know my husband can get into my phone. So, and I can get into his. Yeah. And this is why I say it may or may not have been Maggie that read that text. Because her phone, after supposedly reading that text, is then locked and not unlocked until it is found a quarter mile away the next afternoon. Now, if you remember, also... So, again, this this all... this text and like everything came through at 849. Now according to investigators they believe Paul and Maggie were killed around 850 near the kennels. Hmm. And Paul was shot twice with a shotgun once in the chest and once in the head and Maggie was shot five times with 300 blackout ammo from an AR style rifle and one of those shots went like through the back of her head Mm -hmm. but again that's at 850 at 853 the orientation of Maggie's phone changes so basically the screen kind of is woken up and it basically asked to be activated by face ID and this like and that fails. So the phone remains locked. So this basically implies that someone picked up the phone who was not her. Like her husband. Dot, dot, oh I, did <laughs> I say that? Did I say so, that out yeah. loud? My bad. But this was only a few minutes after she supposedly read another text and then locked her phone. Yeah. I don't think... I don't... I'm not buying it. Yeah. So then from 8.53 to 8.55, Maggie's phone records 59 steps. And then at 9.04, Alex calls his wife's phone and shockingly it's not answered. Trying trying to make yourself an alibi there? You're not too smart as we all remember from your failed attempted suicide. So at 9.08 Alex, you know, after he just called his wife at like two minutes prior and it didn't go through shockingly he then texts his wife to then say going to check on mom be right back giving yourself you know you woke up from from your nap now we're gonna go leave the scene of the crime And go say that we're checking on mom. Mom's going to say, yeah, he came to check on me. So, at 9-11, Alex calls longtime friend and fellow attorney, Chris Wilson. Wilson was busy and asked if he could call Alex back. And that call lasts a whole, like, two minutes. At 9.12, Alex's phone places him traveling to his mother's house in Varn... I think it's Varnville. And then at 9.20, Chris calls Alex back. Alex says he's getting close to his mom's house and asks if he can call him back. And that call lasts three minutes. And then, like, at 9.22, Alex... I'm assuming arrives at his mother's house. He puts his car into park. Now, Shelly Smith, who is basically the caregiver for Alex's mom, 
testifies that Alex calls her from outside the home and asks to be let inside. She's able to get to the door five minutes later, and she testifies that, you know, the mom's in advanced stages of dementia and is asleep during the visit, and that Alex was basically on the phone a lot while he was at his mother's house. At 9.34, Rogan, who is Paul's friend, texts Maggie after getting no response from Paul and tells her to basically have Paul call him and that message goes unread. Then we go back to Alex and his shady self. So from 9.43 till like not like 9.44, like he takes his car out of park, puts it right back into park, then takes it back out of park. And then at 9.47, he texts Maggie asking her to call him. Text goes unread. At 9.52, Alex texts Chris Wilson, call me if you're up, and he does call him back, but there's no answer. So then he basically calls him again, and Alex does pick up this time, and he wanted to talk about some cases, but Alex said he was almost back home, and guess what? He'd call him back. At 9.58, Rogan, who obviously is probably a little like, what the hell is going on? Because he hasn't heard from Paul. He hasn't gotten a response from May. He tries texting Paul again and basically just says, like, yo, like, are you there? Like, you text me about my dog. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? From 10 to 10.05, Alex, I'm assuming, arrives back at Moselle. And in that, like, five-minute period, he puts his car in park five different times before... At 10.07, Alex then calls 911 from the Moselle property. The call is received by Hampton County Dispatch before being transferred to Colton County. And that call lasts seven minutes, and Alex says he found Maggie and Paul, and neither of them are breathing. Yes, he just so happened to find them. Yeah. He didn't cause it. He just stumbled upon the scene. It like it's it's just like dude. We said from the beginning that when we first like read about this case and like saw this case, I was like, the husband killed him. There's no doubt in my mind the husband killed him. And then they're like, Oh, I don't know, and they tried, you know, they tried to spin the whole, like, this could be somebody coming after the family because of the boating thing. And you're gonna figure out why, like, that was ran with real quick. So, yeah. So he calls 911 for, like, that last, like, whole seven minutes. He says, you know, neither Paul or Maggie are breathing. And during that call, he notes that he is not presently by the bodies, and he said he touched them after finding them, but only to see if they were still breathing. He then hangs up and says he needs to call family members. From 10, 11, 45, like PM, mm-hmm. Alex, again, goes to his vehicle, takes it out of park, a minute later, puts it back into park. Then another minute goes by, and he takes it out of park, and there's no log present for when the vehicle is put back into park. At 1026, 
The sheriff's office arrives on the scene, along with South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Like, they're, like, contacted for assistance and that. And then at 10.34, Paul's phone dies. And then at 11.47, the law enforcement division finally does arrive on the scene. So now, along with the updated timeline, stuff that has been released is like body cam footage from that night, along with the first two interviews with police from like Alex. Now, in the body cam footage from that night, you can see that, you know, the police approach Alex and he, at first, he's like seen kind of whimpering and like acting sort of str- he's not hysterical but he like you can see him kind of like pacing a little and he's making sure to be sounding like he's crying and at first he's kind of like talking in that and then they like kind of ask him some questions and right away what does Alex do he in what to me sounds like a drop of the hat like switch in like his tone of voice he basically says it's a long story and goes back to the boat wreck which his son caused but he says my son was in an accident a little while ago and you know we've received threats and that we didn't take them serious but like this has to be because of that. This has to be because of that. Yeah. Not because of anything that, you know, you should own up to. Right. It's like, you're real quick to throw out your son's boating accident that he caused and killed somebody. So... I do kind of urge you, like, I will include the article in that with the body cam footage and that and the first interview. Definitely go and watch those videos. The body cam one is a little bit longer than the first interview, but you'll you'll see what I mean when I say, like, he, you can, it, it feels like he's acting. Like, when he's crying, it does not seem that sincere and maybe it was i mean maybe he did finally start feeling grief but like it just it all feels very strange now when you are watching it you will see like it does kind of come off a little jumbled like when he's kind of talking in that and then when he starts throwing out these claims and stuff it's it could be a sign of like him just being in shock, but it also like when he starts throwing off these like off the wall claims, like the boating accident that to me, that as someone who follows true crime and sees stuff like the, like you research and that it just feels like a very, like a diversion tactic. Like he's trying to get any thoughts of them being like, did you have something to do with this? To him immediately giving them somebody else to look at. So then the next thing I watched besides like the body cam footage was the video of the first interview. And in that video, like the police, like you can tell they're trying to be very sensitive because obviously they don't know what the case is, but they want to try to treat him like, you know, a human being that's just lost his wife and child and whatnot. And like, they're very apologetic. They're like, you know, sorry, we have to do this. And he's like, no, no, I understand. You're just, you're doing what you have to. And that, and then like they're, he, the police officer's like, all right, let's take it from the top. And then Paul kind of, not Paul, <laughs> Alex kind of starts. And then he just like, starts he like breaks down but again 
I don't know, maybe he just cries weird. I don't know. But, like, when he starts, like, kind of, like, blubbering and that, it almost sounds like he's, like, laughing. Like, that's how his cry almost sounds, too. I'm like, either you just cry weird or you're a terrible actor. <laughs> but, um, during that, like, interview, he brings up the fact that they apparently just hired some, like, working hand there. And he wasn't, he wasn't up to par for, like, their standards. And that, and then he goes on to basically tell the cop this really off-the-wall story that he claims that he heard secondhand from, like, a guy that, like, I guess is in charge of, like, that property and whatnot. And basically says that this guy told him that he was, like, at one point some, like, undercover, like, informant or whatnot for, like, the cops and that. And he worked basically to kind of be undercover and do this, like, um, spy mission on, like, basically black extremists. <laughs> and his job was to eliminate them. And the police goes, like, kind of, and he goes, I know, I know, it's weird. And then he goes, yeah, that's really an odd story <laughs> and whatnot. And they kind of talk about it for a little. But it's just like, again, Alex, you're trying to divert attention from you to someone else. And he goes on to basically say, like, yeah, he was supposed to. Like, he wasn't supposed to work today, but he did call me, and, that, and it's like, all right, sure. So then we go on to the second interview, which is only three days after the fact of his, like, wife and child being killed, and I sent Sloan, like, the one snippet. And I'm going to try to see if I can get it to pull up and play. This is from, like, Court TV's, like, Twitter. They include this one short little clip in the, like, tweet. And I want you to listen. Like I said, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll play right. But... I want you to listen and you tell me what you think he is saying here. I mean, you definitely saw a traumatic picture, and, and I know it's not hard, or not, not easy. I know it's hard. Um, and sitting here talking today is, is tough. It's just so bad. I did it so bad. Such a good boy, too. <laughs> I'm gonna hope that came through clearly. If not, like, I'm going to include all the links so you can watch, like, these yourselves. But I said it to Sloan, and I was supposed to listen to it at lunch, and I was not reminded to listen to oh, it at lunch. Fine, so but... I didn't do my homework. But to me, it sounds very fuzzy. Like, I would need to listen to that several times. Yeah. You don't... Yeah. But, like, one, you you hear his crying. You see why I say it. It almost sounds like one of those, like, kind of laughing at yourself or trying to, like, make yourself cry. Like, to, it's, mm -hmm. it's a weird cry. Almost like the Weeping Willow. Yeah. Uh, it's, is, it's... That the, is that the case? The yeah, 911 like, caller, the weeping willow. I think, I don't know. But, like, it's it's just very, like, it's very odd. But, like, to me, when, because it starts out, that's the cop doing, like, the interview and whatnot. But when Alex finally talks, like, it's very mumbled. But it almost, to me, sounds like he says, <laughs> it's so bad what I did. And then he starts crying and whatnot. And then he says, you know, he was such a good boy, too. And it's like, 
How are you a good boy in that scenario? I'm like, did, did he just say it's so bad what I did? Or it, did he say it's so bad what they did? Like, it's just, it's so, like, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What the hell did you just say? But that's just a short clip. You can go and watch, like, the full thing. And they kind of talk more. And then, like... Like I said, th this happened three days after. And if you watch the beginning of, like, that interview, he's calm. Not a tear. Not a quiver in his voice. He's just like, oh, I have this paperwork I need to sign? Alright, yeah. Alright, here. Am I gonna get a copy of that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Are we gonna start? Okay. Okay. <laughs> and it's like, what? Uh, sir! So... Like I said, like, all this, like, I literally, I was working on a different case, and I kind of got to a point in that one where I was like, all right, I need a break, because this is, it, it's one of those cases when I do finish it, like, it's another one that was like, that's like, just one of those, you go, wait, Heavy. what happened? <laughs> mm -hmm. But, and then I saw this, and I was like, oh, there's new stuff, and start going in, and there's some stuff I didn't get into in the new stuff that's released, like I saw something that apparently they found boxes of ammo in the trash, along with receipts from like big purchases from the wife. And I'm just like, what happened here? Did he send her out to buy the ammo? And then use it to kill her? Like, what? It's just, yeah, it's just. There's so much stuff coming out, and it is not painting a good picture towards Alex. Like, if I did already think so shadily of him, this, this is not helping would... at all. Because, like I said, he, what I remember from, like, the first time I read, he made it seem like he got the info that his father was in the hospital, dying. Mm-hmm. And he went and was there until he came home. And now he is basically being forced to say, well, no, I didn't go. I did go to, you know, the house and that. And then I left. So you were there when your wife and son were there. Yep. And then you try to say you were sleeping, apparently, when they were shot. Well, he just really depended on all this being swept underneath the rug. Yeah. And to be honest, it would have been if... I think her name is Maggie from yeah, the, the Murdoch Mur yeah. Murders podcast. Like, she is from the area and she actually dug into this and, like, brought all of this to the light. Otherwise, he would have gotten away with it. Yeah. It's just, like I said, this case, it just, it keeps... It's like, as soon as you think, like, Maybe he'll just get lights. When it rains, it pours and is ongoing. And we still do not have a verdict in this case. But like I said, all this happened. And I was like, all right, I need to do an update. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure there will be another one once we finally do get a verdict. But it's just, it's something that literally as I read, it just, it keeps being so mind-blowing. Yeah. And this new updated timeline just makes me go, you what? lying piece of shit. <laughs> and what? also, what the fuck? I just wish the one video that has like his voice from like right before mm -hmm. actually showed him. Yeah. Because you now have to convince jury that that is actually his voice. Yeah, true. Very true. So, it's just, yeah, it's, it was too much of, like, you know, overwhelming amount of information for me and not be like, all right, let's, let's push this off. I was like, no, we're going to dive in. <laughs> but that is my case. I know we said it was probably going to be a little short, but no, I figured it was probably going to run a little long, but I didn't think it was going to run this long, but it is what it is. Like I said, I will do my best to keep you all updated, but 
this case has been fascinating me since it dropped and we're this far into it i wanted to keep us going (laughs) so i guess with that being said until we know anything else we will kick you off to our last call welcome back to another last call with sloan i'm bringing you another mardi gras themed one and today i thought we'd talk about like other cities other than new orleans (laughs) that celebrates mardi gras because really, I just thought that it was like a southeastern thing, and it's not. Not by a long shot. So, first on the list, of course, Mobile, Alabama. While New Orleans is known as the ultimate Mardi Gras destination, Mobile is widely recognized as the birthplace of the festival. The city of Mobile puts on authentic parades over the course of two weeks surrounding Fat Tuesday, which allows you plenty of opportunities to observe the tradition. Members of different societies riot in the... uh, (laughs) They're going to riot? What? (laughs) Please don't. Please don't. (laughs) Members of different societies ride on the floats and throw small gifts that are are enjoyed by kids and adults alike. I know I walked away with a hula hoop, a ball, a bouncy ball, a tennis ball, a lot of candy. Should have had an Olaf, but somebody wanted to be a little fucker and tempt us with it and then put it down and throw other shit rude next on the list is st louis missouri i would not mind going to st louis's and then just stay until st patrick's day like a whole (laughs) month of drinking in st louis please according to budget magazine winters are chilly in st louis but early spring brings the festivities of the largest mardi gras outside of new orleans Eh. st louis knows how to party i know that's right (laughs) right With over a month of activities, the celebration is nonstop for weeks. A pet parade. (laughs) Wiener dog derby. (laughs) And a family winter carnival are just some of the dozens of activities and events that make St. Louis a city you must visit for Mardi Gras. What do you say, Trish? (laughs) What do you say? What do you say? Next on the list is San Diego, California. Despite the fact that the city lacks French heritage, San Diego celebrates Mardi Gras as though they do. Unlike some of the other cities on the list that host events over several weeks, San Diego plans all parades and events for Fat Tuesday only. The Gaslight District is the place to be in order to see fire eaters, stilt walkers, and of course traditional parades. One thing that I do know about San Diego is that it is like an out there... city and i say that in the best way possible like in the way that i want to move there because i feel like it is (laughs) my kind of vibe so i'm not saying that i'll I'll say it like this i'm a fucking weirdo and i think that san diego is a town full of fucking weirdos too and that being said i think that they find any and every excuse to celebrate and i am here for that vibe like (laughs) maybe i just need to move to san diego Galveston Island, Texas. I wouldn't have thought of this, but it is along the Gulf Coast, and I've learned that the Gulf Coast loves to celebrate Mardi Gras. So this city has the largest Mardi Gras celebration in the state of Texas. Galveston Island hosts many events for the whole family to enjoy. It's really a very family-friendly event with tons of fun during the almost nonstop parades and celebrations the two weeks leading up to Fat Tuesday. In addition to performances by major musical acts, there did they have Nelly though? (laughs) Did they? Because we did. (laughs) Anyways, there are many events, including a special show involving dancers with umbrellas. How exciting! We had Nelly. (laughs) Biloxi, Mississippi. Biloxi is the center of an enormous Fat Tuesday celebration along the Mississippi coast. Overall, the city hosts 24 parades and parties, offering something for everyone. Indulge in a slice of king cake and visit the Mardi Gras Museum to round out your visit. We have a Mardi Gras Museum here, too. You didn't mention that in this article. I also feel like Biloxi really makes sense because after Katrina, you did have a lot of um, New Orleans, like, natives move there. 
I mean, yeah, yes and no, because Biloxi also kind of got destroyed, not near as bad as New Orleans, but a lot of your New Orleans refugees moved northward, not yeah. necessarily. Now, whenever they moved back down, a lot of them ended up outside of New Orleans then, because it took a very long time to rebuild New Orleans. Well, I know Sam's family ended up in Biloxi. Yeah. I had a lot of, I grew up outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and we had a lot of people that, like, moved into our school in our neighborhood, and so, anyways, anyways, back to my list. Back to my list. All right, um, so also, Gulf Shores slash Orange Beach, which is where we like to go in the summer sometime, usually it's Pensacola, but... <laughs> These two rollicking beach towns get their Mardi Gras juju going, parades, beads, and all. There are more than 20 day and evening family-friendly parades that draw crowds upwards of 450,000 people for the festivities. I don't want to go with that many people. Right. Maybe I don't need to go to New Orleans either then. <laughs> Highlights include events at Lucy's Buffet, Lucy Buffet's Beach Bar and Restaurants, Lulu's. It's a it's a good place to go if you just want to, you know, go to somewhere because you went somewhere to say you went there. Otherwise, the food is like everywhere else down yeah. there. In particular, Buffet throws a high-spirited Mardi Gras ball. Another must-see is the Mystics of Pleasure Mardi Gras Parade, where, unlike many other parading groups, the crew members ride Harley-Davidsons instead of horses. We I, get both. I would go to watch the... Yeah, I would like both, actually. Because what, what cool things... You couldn't carry multiple Olafs right. on a motorcycle. Anyways, so that is my last call for today. Hope you enjoyed learning about some future travel destinations for all of us to visit for Mardi Gras. <laughs> Whether you go during Mardi Gras season or not, I'm sure they're all great places to go. But hope you enjoyed this. You can find us on social media. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. They are all Tequila She Wrote. You can also email us at tequilashewrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up. For as little as two dollars a month you get ad free episodes and then if you pay a little more you get more content we also try to do a bonus like episode on there that we do not put out on spotify we are a little behind but again we're catching up so give us time but if you want to find us there, easiest way is by going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our socials, click on our link tree, and click on the Patreon little thing, and it should send you directly there. What else? Yeah. I was like, what else do we have? Thanks for riding <laughs> on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep. <laughs>